Hey there, this is Darren LaCroix, 2001 world champion of public speaking out of 25,000 contestants. But that's not where I started. In fact, I bombed at a comedy club in Boston in 1992. It was horrible. So what's the difference between way back then and where I am today and getting to speak around the world for a living and get to do what I love to do? Join Ryan and me for this next episode of World of Speakers and get some insights behind that story and what I learned from my coaches that'll help you in front of your audiences connect, leave a lasting impact, and make a difference. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Welcome everyone to another episode of the World of Speakers podcast. And here today we are talking with Darren LaCroix, who individually beat out 25,000 contestants to be the world champion of public speaking. Darren, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? <laughs> doing great. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's funny, people talk about competitions and you beat 25,000 people and then literally fell on your face, uh, which is... <laughs> So if you haven't seen this championship speech, I would recommend it. It's easy to find out there. And it was inspiring. And you literally fell on your face. And uh, what is hilarious is you stayed there for a good minute and a half, which I think breaks all conventional rules. Mm. And it just goes to show that in order to be at the top of the top, you've got to really rattle the cage and step outside of what people might think is the comfort zone. Mm. And it pays to listen to your coach. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're going to be our pseudo coach today. But before we get too much into the nitty gritty of the coaching so you can tell us how to fall correctly, I want to know a story from your past. Imagine that I had an opportunity to introduce you to somebody. You don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. But I tell them one story. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy, Darren, this one time he blank. And then that story encapsulated is something that really represents maybe you as a person. And we'll dissect it and get to know a little bit. Any story come top of mind? Absolutely. So I have been an entrepreneur since I was in college. I love business. And I went out and I bought a Subway sandwich shop. And they used to have, back in when I did that, it was about 2000. They had a 98% success rate. And I messed up so bad that within a year and a half or so, I, I lost my sub store. I sold it at a loss and I don't blame Subway. It was all me. My ego was in the way, but thank God I was at such a low point. One of my buddies gave me this motivational tape of a man named Brian Tracy. He's a great speaker, kind of like Tony Robbins, but very logical and very down to earth. And he resonated with me because I was at such a low point. I was driving down the road, listening to this tape and he asked this question and he said, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? And I was at such a spot in my life that I, I was just wide open to anything. And I just answered to myself. I said, I would be a comedian. That would be the ultimate. But all of a sudden, the little doubting voice in my head said, but that's not you, Darren. You're not funny. But that wasn't the question. The question was, what would you dare to dream if you knew you wouldn't fail? So thank God I was at the lowest point in my life. I was living at home with my parents. I had uh, school loans, business loans, even though I didn't have a business anymore. And so I just said, you know what? I'm going to try this once. It wasn't a big dream. It was I didn't want to live my life with the regret of wondering what if. 
What if that guy was right? So I said, okay, if I'm going to do this right, I'm going to ask someone who has been there and done that. So on Friday night, I went to this little comedy club in Worcester, Massachusetts, near where I lived. And I was a real quiet, shy kid. I had never been funny. I had never been on stage, but I just, I said, I got to try this. So I go to this comedy club and I walk up to the headliner after the show. I muster up all the courage I can. And I said, hi, my name is Darren. I want to try this. What do I need to do? And he asked me a question. He said, are you funny? And I said, no. (laughs) And he said, good. I'm like, what? What do you mean good? And he went on to explain that people who are class clowns, people who are naturally funny. He said, that's one thing when you're around your friends and colleagues, people who know you. He said, but if you gave that class clown a microphone and put them in front of a group of 100 strangers, they couldn't make them laugh. That's a different skill set. But he said, that skill set can be learned. And I like was like, what? You know, I was all in then. He said, all right, two things. Number one, you need to get the book. I'm like, book? There's a book about stand-up comedy? Well, of course, there's a book about everything, but I wasn't thinking that way. And he said, number two, you need to go to amateur nights. You need to go to an open mic night and watch other people who are just starting out. Well, duh, that makes sense. If you're getting new or starting something brand new, you're starting even to learn Facebook ads or something new. It's like, don't compare yourself to all the big testimonials. When I told my friends and family I wanted to try stand-up, they compared me to Jerry Seinfeld, someone just starting out to someone who's at the top of their profession. That's not fair. And I think that's one <laughs> challenge we all have. And so I went and got the book. And then on Sunday night, he told me about this little open mic night in downtown Boston at this comedy club called Stitches. And I walked in and I saw people go up for their very first time. You know, you could smell the stale beer, the sticky floor. And these people went up and they were horrible. And I thought, I could do that. (laughs) Like, that's within my comfort zone. I can go up and make a fool of myself. I've done that so many times. And on that night, I remember going up on stage. I was literally shaking. My voice was quivering. And it was so bad and I was bombing and it was these pity laughs here and there. And I, I said this one joke and it didn't land. And it was about this rocket that took off and went vertically. But I did horizontal with my arm when I said <laughs> vertical. And at that instant, I just realized I messed up and I just said, ah, shoot. That's not the actual word I used. Right. But I said, ah, shoot. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And I'm in awe. I'm looking around. I'm like, that's not where they're supposed to laugh, but that's a result. Like, <laughs> that was the only laugh I got that night. But when I walked off stage, this man put his arm around my shoulder. And he said, don't worry, man. It's just your first time. And I remember thinking, don't worry. It's my first time. Did you see what I did? Dude, I got a laugh. No one told me I could do this. And at that moment, Ryan, I just dove in. I took every class that I could. I found every mentor that I could. I didn't put any time frame on this. I just said, I'm going to figure this out. And I was just willing to bomb and willing to fail more than anyone because it was a dream of making people laugh. That thing that I, I thought you could never learn. And now at least I had a path. Interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. I appreciate you sharing. So I'm a guy of threes, everything. I just see them in threes, right? And so the three words that stuck out to me was curiosity, confidence, and timing, So I want to just break a little bit down though. So curiosity, you mentioned that you hadn't won anything and maybe you were more on a traditional business path, but 
were you a curious child or not? I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about your curiosity. Well, I would say I was a dreamer, but I was not a doer. I was a dreamer with no self-confidence, with a lot of self-doubt. I grew up uh, as a child. I had I was born with a club foot, which means one foot is like twisted and down into the right. So I had to wear like these braces and I had two different size shoes that, and I used to get teased by my classmates. And I grew up with really self low self-esteem because of that. So all my whole life, I was the quiet kid. I was the shy kid. I remember being jealous of my cousin and my brother who were, who were those class clowns who could make the audience laugh later on in life. When I went through some, some self-development seminars, I, I asked myself, why did comedian pop up when I asked that question? Like, where did that come from? And right. when I kind of explored my own life. I realized when I was about eight years old, I was at a family function, a classic Polish family holiday. And we're at the kids table and my cousin and brother, they're recapping Saturday Night Live skits and Steve Martin jokes and everybody's laughing. I remember I stood up and I tried to make the audience my family laugh to keep the laughter rolling. And I like hushed the whole audience. <laughs> and my brother's like, yeah, nice going, Big D, figuring out that comedy is not easy. And I slid back in my seat as that eight-year-old kid. And I said, I will never, ever try to be funny again because of the fear of embarrassment that I didn't like that feeling. I hated it. And I never wanted to attempt that again. So I think that question later on when I was 22 years old, went back to that eight-year-old kid who had a dream, who wanted to make people laugh. And I think that was the connection. So growing up, I was, to answer your question a little more directly, I was, I loved sports, but I wasn't very good. I wasn't very smart. I never won anything, but I was, I can't really say that curiosity was that thing. It was that love of laughter that was reawoken, awoken, awaken. Yeah. Awokenness, attainment. <laughs> I even talk dyslexic. <laughs> no, that that does. It's interesting. And the next one you kind of answered a little bit too, but with this confidence. And I'm really interested in the voices inside your head. It sounds like it took somebody to give you an excuse to sort of beat the voices in your head. And from a childhood that you were picked on, I too went through a bull, you know, a, a period of time where I was bullied, and it really does affect that confidence. But mm. do you still have? I, I mean, I guess we all have those naysayers in our head, but what was that? There was just that moment when the book that you were listening to brought you out and did it give you permission or you beat the other naysayers to the punch? Because I'm interested in how so many people I feel want to be speakers. They want to be comedians. They want to be these things. There might be some suppressed memory in the back of the, in their childhood that stopped them. But, you know, how do people tap into beating these naysayers? Uh, was there, mm. was it accidental at the time? And you've sort of tapped into that. I'm curious of that moment. Well, I think, you know, I love self-development. I think that's why a lot of us gravitate to self-development because we're affected so much by it. You know, it's like giving us hope when we listen to Zig Ziglar or Brian Tracy, Tony Robbins, Jim Rohn, when we listen to them, it resonates with us because I think we all have that little kid that was hurt one way or another that still lives inside us. And I thank God now for that naysayer later on because it gave me someone to prove wrong. Mm, okay. I like that. So it's not that they go away. It's that they're kind of always there, but it yeah. gave you a mentality to say, you are wrong. Let me prove you wrong instead of just being sort of silenced by their voices. Yeah. And I would also say one of the other pivotal parts of my story was 
I used to blame everybody else. And I heard this story from Jim Rohn where his mentor kind of called him out and said, Jim, make a list of all the reasons you're not successful. And he wrote out a list and he brought it to his mentor the next day. And his mentor looked it over, said, Jim, there's one problem with this list. Your name ain't on it. <laughs> and I, it resonated with me because when I opened my sub shop, I blamed the landlord who told me they were going to put in a traffic light right in front of the store because it was like high speed, high, high volume, but high speed. So people felt like they were taking their life in their hands to pull into the store. So I blamed him because he told me this could happen. He never said it would. I blamed the lawyer. I blamed Subway. I blamed everybody. But I chose the franchise. I chose the location. I chose to ignore my lawyer who said what could happen. And it was me. And then there's another Jim Rohn quote that was pivotal. He said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that was huge for me because I realized, like, if you have that voice of doubt, well, you know, God help you if you're living or married to that person. I, I can't imagine that. But when we <laughs> have these people in our lives, that they're around us and we let them influence our top five, not like we need to get people out of our life. But we need to be conscious of the influence of the people we keep close to us. We can't tell them our dreams because they won't get it. They won't understand it. You know, I put Brian Tracy and Tony Robbins in my car with me and they became part of my top five, even though I didn't know them. Right. But they kept telling me I could. They kept telling me to listen, to be around. You know, I learned from them, be around the headliners, listen to the headliners. In the comedy world, you have opening acts, middle acts and headliners. It's easy access to the opening acts as a wannabe, you know, they're willing to talk to, listen to anybody, but they have the worst habits. They know the wrong strategies. So what I learned from Brian Tracy in my car was like, go right to the headliners. Whenever they're around, whenever they're talking, listen, ask them what books to go for, to read, see who they say to study. You know, the opening acts, they're going to give you bad advice. Doesn't mean they, they are not well-meaning, but at the same time, if you're listening to the people who are a half a step ahead of you, who make most mistakes, have the worst habits, you're going to develop those same mistakes and those same habits. So it was like, I was like a little kid when I was around them, like with my fingers in my ears, la, 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 la. <laughs> but the people who are opening, you might feel like you have more in common with, and you might have more of a bond with, and they might be more approachable. But as you're saying, they're openers for a reason. So go right to the source and surround yourself with those who are the headliners. Yep. Go to the people where you want to be. So quick question about time and timing, and then I want to transition in our time to some of your speaker tips. Now, timing I wrote down because oftentimes there's talk of luck and there's talk of you know different factors that you don't really have control over. And it sounds like timing was a big part of sort of your past and how you got to where you are. So how important is timing when it comes to success? Is it something that you just can't put your hand on and you just kind of have to patiently wait? Or are you able to influence this timing by surrounding yourself with the right people and getting up there and spending more time on stage? Do you see timing as a passive or active attribute to where you are now? I think it was crucial. If I wasn't at the lowest place in my life with nothing to lose, I probably never would have tried stand up right? because my ego would have been in the way. So thank God I had no ego. So I think the timing is an issue with everything, but I think more so than that is the mindset that we bring to the timing hmm. that when we have the right mindset, we're going to see things differently. We're going to see timing differently. We're going to see opportunities that are right there 
that we might not miss if we have the wrong mindset or a limited mindset. I know it's not exactly your question, but no, I, no, it's, it actually is is more okay. insightful than the answers that I gave you. And speak, <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of timing, one last comment here, or maybe more of a, a question: Ask me what the trick is, or what the magic is for Polish humor. Go ahead and ask me. <laughs> What's the magic timing. for Polish humor? Yep. <laughs> Just thought of this. Good, good, funny <laughs> joke. So in that, <laughs> in that, let's transition to um, my humor boot camps coming up. If you want to, <laughs> hey, this is just audio time. This is just amen. All I think everybody should have jokes, both good jokes and bad jokes, because you know when you said any stage time is stage time. There's a lot of opportunity, especially when it comes to joke, to fall flat because sometimes your failure can be funny. Absolutely. Uh, that's what most humor is based on. Humor stems on or is built on tragedy and built on a release of tension. You know, that's one of the reasons that I shifted over from stand up to speaking because I realized that I had to be in comedy clubs seven nights a week, five nights a week, as much as I could to grow, learn, to make the connections. The challenge is that when we're in an environment like the nightclub environment that much, the environment affects us. So because the environment affects us, I realized that, you know, what's the difference between stand up and humor? Comedy cuts down, humor lifts up. Hmm. Comedy cuts down. There's a victim. That's what stand up comedy is. And it doesn't mean every stand up comedy joke, but if we kind of look at the difference between the two, like being in a nightclub atmosphere was sucking the life out of me. So that's one of the reasons it was the best training ground. And I'm thankful for every moment, but coming over to speaking was like a whole different world. And I think what we need to do, whatever we want to do, whether it's speaking or business, you know, we've got to be willing to make those mistakes. We've got to surround ourselves with the right people. But what I'm also saying about, you know, it's not just stage time, stage time, stage time. It's what's the intention you bring to the stage time, like the jokes you say, have the jokes. Okay. But what's the intention behind the delivery of that joke? Like if you know, you and I are, we're doing an interview here. It's fun. It's fine. And I'm really working on my timing with that joke. Cause it is all about <laughs> timing for that joke. And it's just like, it's so exciting <laughs> to try to hit it right. <laughs> yeah. I, the way I heard that originally was, so ask me a question. Why am I so funny? Why are you so funny? Timing. <laughs> I didn't get it out quick enough. No, you're right, right. I got to interrupt you. So it takes practice. But if you're practicing with the intention to get better, to improve it, that's different from the intention of just getting a laugh. Like you want to experiment. You've got to almost, that's why I say it's, you got to have that mindset of growth that it's not just this time on stage. It's I'm going to try something different this time to help me with all the 652 other audiences I'll be in front of in the next year and a half. Right. Good clarification on that. Stage time with intention time, maybe stage tension time. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to pick your brain a little bit. I mean, you know, you find you online and you get your 10 tips and you've got your edge book and you've got all these resources and things that are obvious, not so obvious, and even niche. If you were to pick a handful from your bag of tricks, and you were to say, these are some of the most crucial, most fundamental things to get you from where you are to where you want to go. Again, and I mm -hmm. think it's applicable to speaking, to comedy, to business even. I think we can make that. If you were going to make a Subway sandwich for somebody and the Subway <laughs> sandwich represents success, 
you being the sandwich artist, even one who had failed, which is cool, what would that sandwich look like? And what would some of these pieces be like? What would the bread be? What is the spread? What kind of meat are you filling with it? We're looking at this as the sand. This is choosing your bread. Yep. Choose your bread first. Yeah. So I just want to bring up, go to go get trained first, get Subway University first, just like I did to learn how to build the sandwich and why you need this bread, why you need to raise it so long. All right. So now let's get to the sandwich. So number one, you know, people ask me all the time about how, how do you connect with the audience? Well, the key is you need to connect with yourself first. Hmm. You need to be fully connected with you and your stories. So how do you do that? So here's what I teach. So here's the four questions I ask myself to this day, right before I go on stage. And this works with before an interview, before you're doing a Skype call, before you're creating a course, before you're having an important conversation. So number one, what is my intent? What is my intent? And your intent should always be audience focused, not self-focused, not I want to be the best speaker. I want them to walk away understanding such and such a principle. So you got to number one, set your intention. This is five minutes before you go up on stage. And that's the crucial moment where either you could let your ego step in and it'll take over and you'll fail, even though you might say the exact right words, they'll sense it. Audiences are so savvy. So number one, what's my intention? Number two, am I present? Am I right here right now with these people? Forgetting your problems, they're going to be there when you're done. Question number three, will I have fun? Sometimes I get so intense that I really want to help and I I forget, this is supposed to be fun. So I need to remind myself before I go on stage. In fact, that's where I get this whole idea from of the four questions. Right before I walked on stage for the world championship, the biggest speech in my life, I had remembered about two hours before to write myself a note because the two hour before Darren wrote a note to the five minute before Darren and I put it in my pocket and I was so intense and I was pacing back and forth behind the big iMag screen. And I'm like, Oh, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. I'm listening to my music. I'm like, Oh yeah, there's something I forgot. And I pull out the note and all the note said was remember to have fun. I like that. And my whole physiology changed. My body changed. You came out there hot to trot and like, you know, addressing the contest master from the ground. I think everyone had fun with that. (laughs) Yep. And then the fourth question came from Willie Jolly, one of my mentors, great motivational speaker. And he said, ask yourself this question. How would I give this presentation if I knew it was my last one ever? Hmm. That's powerful. That puts you in a better mindset. Now, that doesn't excuse not preparing, but wherever you're at, you've got to prepare, number one. But number two, now you've got to prepare for the moment you take the stage. So I'm not excusing not preparing, but then once you get to that five minutes before, okay, now you've got to switch over. I think it was Sir Lawrence Olivier, great actor, said, rehearsal is the work, performance is the relaxation. Hmm. And so when we get up there, when we, in the middle of this interview, let's, you know, have fun with it. So we've got to almost remind ourselves that, okay, I did the work. And if you didn't do the work, your self-doubt is going to creep in even more. So do the work. But then once it comes to be quote unquote showtime, now you've got to just have fun with it. Don't practice your first two lines over and over again. It's done. You either know it by then or you don't. 
Now it's time to show up and connect with that audience. But you can't connect with them if you're not connected to yourself. Now, I know that's not actually a, you know, a technique or something, but I think above everything, Ryan, it's so important to understand that. No, and I, and I think that that's super valid, especially when you're looking at this from a perspective of not just being on stage, but getting back to that intention. And I know that personally, you don't always ask yourself that question. Sometimes you get in a routine and when you're speaking a lot and sometimes you fall into this rhythm, but it's almost like a rhythm buster to just remind yourself the intention, mm. making sure that you're present. That's a huge, huge thing. I, I recently reread The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, and it's just such a crazy reminder to be present, and it's so important mm. on stage. The whole having fun with it, I think, is under-communicated because I believe that the audience is a reflection of you. And so many times I'll hear people make complaints about the audience. It's like, dude, it's not the audience. It's you. <laughs> and the rising tide, I, I think you have to be a little bit more than you want the audience to be because they'll come along with you. But if you're not having fun, there's a good chance they won't, <laughs> right? Oh, for sure they won't because they'll sense you. That's why, you know, I, I saw, I don't know if you're a Jim Carrey fan, but there's a Netflix special about Jim and Andy when he was preparing to play Andy Kaufman. <laughs> yes, I did see that. And he'd get like so into character and <laughs> he yeah. just wouldn't drop the character. But there was a brilliant line that he said. I don't know if you picked up on it. I actually didn't pick up on it until a second time. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, that's genius. And Jim said at the beginning of his career, he was bound and determined to be the best comedian. And he would go to bed at night and he said, what does the audience want? What do they really want? And if you go back, it's in the first 15 minutes or so. It's a Netflix for anybody listening. Go check it out. Anyway, he said that he woke up at like two in the morning one morning with the answer. And this is brilliant. Everyone listen to this, speaker, comedian, anybody. He said what the audience wants is freedom from concern for the performer. Hmm. What the audience wants to know is that they don't have to worry about you. They don't have to feel bad for you if you bomb. And that's why he said, now, I knew what they wanted. At the beginning, I was still insecure and you know figuring out as, as he went. But he had to put the mask on that he didn't care if they liked him or they didn't like him, that he was going to be okay being himself and being big. And he said he took the stage differently after that. And that's when he started you know, in his over-the-top wackiness. But he owned it. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to own it. So this is making me think of the willing suspension of disbelief, right? This is a big part of just theater and being immersed, whether you're watching a movie or even listening to somebody get into their joke. This willingness to sort of suspend everything that could be real and you're open-minded. But this makes me think of the willing suspension of concern, right? Mm -hmm. If you can get your audience to not feel for you, then the message is translated through you to them and they can interpret it however they want. I think that's an interesting spin. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tweet up well Jim said. Carrey after this and just let him know. I'll tag <laughs> cool. him. Well <laughs> yeah. So to get back to more specifics, because yeah. I know that's what people really want, but like you got to get that other part first. So I learned a story. So there's this guy named Michael Haig. Michael Haig is a Hollywood screenwriter. He actually is like a script consultant for Will Smith. He's brilliant. And like story, story is his thing. And Ryan, are you familiar with uh, 
Russell Brunson and ClickFunnels? Yeah, yeah. I've got a business partner who works pretty closely with him. So in Russell's book, The Expert Secrets, he talks about what Russell learned from Michael Haig. There's like two chapters about what he calls your epiphany bridge story. So he learned storytelling from Michael Haig, and that's who I'm talking about. Okay. So when I connected with Michael, even though I've been a speaker for years, I always thought, you know, you got to tell your story, you got to tell your story. And what Michael Haig says, if you truly want to make audience impact, if you want to be unforgettable, the purpose of story is to elicit emotion. And most people tell stories. And I had several comedy mentors. One of them, his name was Dave Fitzgerald. And he saw that, you know, you got to have stories. You got to have stories. He saw that I was like lusting to find my quote unquote signature story, that story that would launch my career. This was long before the world championship when I was still trying to figure out the path of my career and everything like that. So I would look for a story, look for another story, try that story, try this story. But I just thought I needed to find the story. And what Dave said to me, which is along the same lines of, he said, Darren, stop trying to find that story that launches your career. And instead, take the story you already have and make them so good, someone will pay to hear them. Hmm. That's huge. It's not just a story. It's an unforgettable story. It's a story that elicits emotion. So what I wasn't doing was working on my craft. So I had a day job when I was trying to become a professional speaker. I was speaking anywhere and everywhere I could, and I was marketing myself every waking moment. The one thing I wasn't doing was working on my craft, working on my stories. So he told me this for two years, and I ignored him. I just kept out there working, 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 working. And after he passed, I was like, you know what? I need to make my stories better. So I actually took my keynote speech and I pulled out the best story that I had, my story of my first time on stage, a Stitches story, the one that I told earlier. I pulled it out and I gave it an open and a close to fit in the Toastmasters speech contest format. My whole goal was to compete, to focus telling that story and make it unforgettable. With my reasoning, whether I got a trophy or not, was to put it back in my keynote speech in a much improved form. There's a fellow world champion friend of mine. His name is Craig Valentine. He said, if you want a masterpiece, you have to master the pieces. <laughs> and so I finally took Dave's advice and I worked on that story so much. I ran it through a world-class storytelling process that I didn't even know there was such a thing. I thought just, here's the story, tell it better. Add this, remove that, boom, that's as good as it gets. So what we need to do is find our stories and tell our stories in a way that it transforms the audience, that we transform their thinking, that we thought this way, we heard the story, we now think a different way. Just like when I heard that Jim Rohn story of his mentor, I was blaming myself. I heard the story. I knew I needed to take responsibility. See, that's the process of being a great presenter, that we leave differently than before we heard you. And I think that's the goal, that if you can be a speaker, if you really want to be a speaker, whether you want to get paid well or have a message that you're passionate about, do we think differently when you're done? And that's your goal to get us to think differently. And one of the biggest tools for that 
is story. Now, I'll give you a quick storytelling technique that will help with that. And one of the ways is to tell your stories in dialogue versus narration. When I first brought version 1.0 of my speech to my coach, I had told this story about going home to tell my parents I wanted to be a comedian. And it was a story. It became part of my speech. So originally it sounded like this. So I went home to tell my parents I wanted to be a comedian. They didn't know what to say. They were speechless. Okay. Kind of boring. Okay. Tough situation. But when Mark, now this is more of a visual, so you'd have to see me deliver this, but anybody can go check out my speech on YouTube. Just put in Darren LaCroix winning speech and you'll find it. They're looking for the face drop here, which I, I know yes, is coming. exactly. Yeah. You know. So Mark, my coach, taught me to turn it into dialogue. There's another great coach. His name is Lou Heckler. He says, take us to the moment so we hear the conversation. Don't tell us about the moment in the past. So it went from telling mom and dad that I wanted to be a comedian and they were speechless and it turned into, now picture, I'm real excited overly excited. I finally figured out my dream and I walk up to my parents, mom, dad, I want to be a comedian. And then my face drops when they have nothing to say, when they don't know what to say. It's more of a cliff jump, actually. It's a cliff jump face job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so here's the other, another, there's several keys to storytelling, even in that little 17 second story. One is reaction tells the story. Most speakers, when they tell their stories, they jump right over the reaction when the reaction is actually the important part. The reaction is where the emotional shift occurs. So when my face changes from excited to deflated or devastated, destroyed, destroyed, (laughs) yes, well said, that's where the story encapsulates in my reaction, but I never even say it. So if there's no emotional shift in one character in the story, there is no story. I dig it. There's a lot to unpack here. This is a sandwich that when you're making it, the person behind the counter is like, I know that you have options of all these different toppings, but are you really going to make me put every single topping on here and then ask me (laughs) afterwards for a couple extra tomatoes and then see if you can get some side sriracha sauce and whatever? Uh, So this is stacked up. Mm One thing it reminds me of one of the tips you have online is, you know, that it's not about writing, it's about rewriting. And what I'm pulling out of all this sandwich, if I'm going to pull the jalapeno off the top, it's that story is what creates the emotion, which creates the change in thought after someone hears you speak, which is kind of like a, a hot pepper that you bite into, leaves a little, a little tang, a little sour in your mouth. But it's not about finding a better story. It's about telling your stories better. Exactly. Cool. Boom. Boom. So let's talk about how people can get more stage time, knowing that it's not just stage time, but it's stage tension time, stage intention time. I think mm-hmm. we can, I can work on that a little bit more there, but what are some of the ways to accelerate your stage time? What are some of the non-obvious tips that maybe you've been figuring out that everybody else just doesn't know yet? Or is it as simple as what everyone continuously says? What would be your advice to now that we have a subway that's all wrapped up and we're going to go hit the town, what do we do? How do we get up on stage more? We got to give out more subs and see what people think. <laughs> gotcha. Do they like them after? Are they talking about how good it made them feel or what a good sandwich artist I am? Mm. 
See, ego, again, causes the problem. So we've got to crave feedback. We can't just ask for it. If people come up to you and say, wow, that was great, receive the compliment, say thank you. But then here's the difference between that person who's truly going to be a pro and the person who never will. We stop them and we say, thank you. What was most important to you? See, then we're actually getting the evidence and the proof of not just I was a great speaker, but what hit home with them. And then we're looking for commonalities. So when I was practicing ouch, when I went around asking people, I was doing it scientifically. I had people tell me everything that made you think and anything that inspired you and then anything that was confusing. So I specifically was asking for that feedback. And the inspiring and thinking part was the mom and dad story. So when I kept hearing that over and over again, I knew that had to stay. So scientifically, giving it enough, the audience told me what worked. So we've got to crave feedback. That's one of those most important elements of becoming better. Because knowing it doesn't matter what we think, it matters what they think. So everyone should write this down. The most important part of a presentation is the thought process in the listener's mind. Hmm. And it's not your opening. It's how your opening affects your thoughts. It's not your slides. It's how your slides affect my thoughts. It's not your closing. It's how your closing affects my thoughts. If everyone is confused, guess what? You are confusing. (laughs) So get on stage as often as you can, number one. Number two, record yourself every single time. If you truly want to be great at what you do, if you truly want to make the audience impact, every time you get on stage is an opportunity to learn. But it's multiplied when you can record it and then you can get those comments and then you can sit down and listen. Now, it is painful. No one wants to listen to their own recording. (laughs) But the question is, do you want to be great or not? I'm only here to help serious people who care about their audience impact, not their own ego. So when you record yourself and you sit and listen, and I know a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to listen. I hate to listen. Oh, guess what? There's the little voices in your head, but you got to beat them to it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You, you should be duct taped to a chair and forced to listen to your own presentation. There's a reason you hate it. Because it wasn't that good. <laughs> you know, but most people aren't willing to do that. Yeah. So look, it's not easy. It's a craft that just because someone can stand up there and some people are natural storytellers, that's great. But do you want to be world-class? And there's, there's, I love this quote by James Clear. He said, everyone wants a gold medal, but no one wants to train like an Olympian. Right. One of my favorite quotes is that successful, well, it can be used in different contexts. So let's just say successful speakers aren't successful because they're doing things that nobody else can do. Successful speakers are doing things that everyone can do, but not everyone does. And that's the Mm -hmm. daily routine. That's the habits. That's Mm -hmm. getting up early. That's watching yourself going through that misery, uh, putting it on mute and watching your body language, listening to it just audio and imagining whether you're doing a, a vertical or horizontal rocket ship with your arm. It does. It gets intense, but it's not easy. And this is like if I were to look at this whole interview, you have. On one side, speaking is as easy as 
not even having a website, not even having a business card. It says easy as the opportunity to speak your mind in front of people or a person. Mm. But the flip side is that it's counterintuitive. It's so easy to get on stage. There are, there are so <laughs> few barriers to entry. Like here's my soapbox, right. but it, that is why it makes it so difficult. And I think so many people are looking for hacks. And would you agree that it, you can hack your way to being world-class or does it really take the hard work, effort, time, dedication, commitment to building sandwiches over and over and over? Well, there are those always special cases where maybe somebody didn't work as hard, but they, you know, somebody's on a reality show. Well, they're a celebrity now. Okay, you can't compare yourself to a celebrity. You're a celebrity. People want to see you. You'll get butts in seats even if you suck on stage. Right, okay. Like, you, like there's exceptions to the rule, and that's why, like, so there are a lot of celebrity speakers who are horrible <laughs> or average right. at best. Now, it pains me because they have this huge opportunity to influence if they got a coach or if they got training or they just had somebody sit down with them and say, okay, do this, don't do this. Like, just get some help. But they keep getting booked at a high fee, so some of them don't think. Like, Mark Eaton is one of my favorite celebrities because he gets it. He's so coachable. He's an ex all-star basketball player from Utah. And he's a great speaker and always getting better. He got a coach. He came to a lot of my workshops when he was just getting started, but he's so coachable. He's the exception. But here's the cool part. You start where you're at, start helping people along the way. And the better you get, the more people are going to follow you. The more people want to buy your programs. If you have programs, the more people are going to rebook you it's going to happen naturally. So that's the cool part. Get on stage. But each time you get on stage with the intention of getting good and learning things and pushing yourself, that you're going to be better for the next audience. Even when I have my two-day boot camps, I sit down with my team and we're like, okay, how do we make this better next time? I change my slides. I write notes in the workbook as I'm doing the two-day workshop for the next one because I have thoughts and ideas and we got to capture them. So you're never done but if you go up with the intention of helping people and you help people, the more you help, the more you're going to get rebooked. We also need to, as a speaker, we need to plant those seeds that, hey, this is what I do for a living. If you know any groups who this story would resonate from, please pass along. You got to be have some self-promotion. Like one of my business mentors, Alan Weiss, said, like, if you don't toot your own horn, there's not going to be any music. <laughs> so we want to do it subtly. But, you know, I started my business with just having a newsletter and passing a clipboard and asking people if you want to join my newsletter. And, you know, now I have tens of thousands of people on my newsletter list. Well, they're the ones who buy my product. Why? Because I write every week. I write an article each week. So it's like we got to be an expert that speaks. Don't think you're a speaker. You're an expert that speaks. What's your area? Well, if you're an expert, then you're probably going to have some tools. You may or may not have some courses. If you're an expert, you probably have a book. So you can have other streams of speaking income. But just be where you're at. Your fee will grow as you grow. But if you are a highly paid speaker, I love this by Mike Rayburn, one of my mentors. He said, if you're not getting paid what you want as often as you want, the problem is your speech. Your speech is your number one marketing tool. If people aren't coming up to you after saying, wow, that was great, like, the problem is you. The problem is your speech. 
So at the beginning, Rotary Clubs, Kiwanis Clubs, Service Clubs, Women Clubs, Associations, Schools, like just speak anywhere and everywhere you can with the intention of getting, you're building your brand. Every time you're on stage, you know, I know you branding is one of your things, Ryan. Every time you're on stage, that's your brand. So what's the quality of your brand? As a speaker, my asset, my number one asset is my list of followers, people in my newsletter, people in my online university. That's my asset. But as a marketing tool, that's my speech. So I'll speak for free still, even though my fee right now is 10 grand, if it's my target audience. So I'll speak some places for a fee, target audience or no target audience, but if they're people who present, that's my target audience. One of the reasons I do interviews like this is to help build my brand. But I'm not coming here with some slick sales talk. I'm here to give content. That's what's going to build my brand. Excellent. Well, let me help you with a a little slick talk. If somebody were to want to attend one of these boot camps or check out one of your courses, where's a good place to point them? Because I feel like we've gotten just the tip of the speaking iceberg or, you know, when you ask for light mayo and then they give you a lot more. Right. I feel like we've got extra mayo on this that I kind of want to peel off and put onto another onto another sandwich. But if people want to build some sandwiches the way that you can teach them to be a sandwich speaking artist, where do you point them? Where's the first way? How do they get to you? Just Google your name or do you want to point them to a certain spot? Uh, Check out stagetimeuniversity.com. If you like live events, I have stagetimeworkshops.com. And if you want the, you had spoken earlier about the the top 10 mistakes, you can go to top10speakingmistakes.com. But just Google me, you'll find me. And I only want to help serious people. Like if you're not serious, like if, and it's you're about your ego, I really don't want to help you. <laughs> Good. Non-serious people need not apply. You and I, Ryan, got to change, help people and change the world. So we got to be careful who we give our expertise to. Very true. And I will tell you, frankly, sir, that whenever I, in the rest, forever in my future, as I enter into a Subway sandwich shop, I will think about it as an analogy to building a speech and being the sandwich artist, but making the person behind the counter feel like it's something that they really want, that they want to pay for, all because it's a story tied in emotion that has your intention behind it and fighting through the little voices in the back of your head the whole time. Hmm. Yeah, the sandwich artist, you know, you as the expert, the sandwich artist, we got to remember that people want different kinds of sandwiches. So they might not, we might not be the right person for them. They want a leadership talk. I'm not your guy. Like, I don't have the experience there. It's not my expertise. I don't make meatball subs. You want a leadership meatball sub? That's not me. But I had to figure that out over time and go bomb being asked because I wanted to take the money. I can talk about that. No, no, no. I can talk about how leaders could be better presenters. But if you want me to talk about leadership, that's not my thing. I don't do meatball subs. Look, I'm a (laughs) turkey and Swiss guy. All right. So I have the inspiration and how to make a better sandwich. Like that's my thing. And stay in your lane. All right. Well, next time you open a franchise, I'm sure it's not going to be franchise. It's going to be your own (laughs) custom sandwich shop where you have people enter into different lanes and specialized sandwich artists so that you're really delivering the right sandwiches to the right target markets. Darren, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you jumping on with me and I hope to share the stage with you sometime and looking forward to digging more into your tools and staying connected. And and I'll definitely tweet up Jim Carrey and I'll include you in that. 
All right. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Good luck with uh, your world of speakers. Thank you. All right, everybody, tune in next time or find an old episode. Make sure that you like and share the ones that you like, especially this one. Leave us a review and subscribe. This is Ryan Folland with Mr. Darren, and we are signing off. Adios. Amigos. Amigos. <laughs>